Welcome to Navarro Live, where tonight we are discussing a story very close to my heart, as regular viewers will know, renting, renting and landlords. Michael Gove has finally um, introduced a renter's reform bill. It's been promised since 2019, put off for a very long time. He says it's going to protect us from no-fault evictions. Is he right? I'll be discussing that with Dahlia. Gabriel, Dahlia, how are you doing? I'm good. I'm loving the like boudoir red light district kind of lighting that you've got going on. It's very sexy. We've had a, a good friend of ours, Alfie Farol, in to give us some better lighting. Apparently, now I'm not the only person that hosts. We have to look better, you know. Uh, when it was just me, they thought it's fine if I look like trash and blend into the background. But now there are other people who also host this show. Suddenly, um, we're investing in new lights. I don't know. I don't know how I am. Um, how I deal with these conditions. First story. The Renters Reform Bill has finally been introduced to Parliament. It's the piece of legislation that will supposedly halt the use of no-fault evictions in England. Um, first promised in 2019, it had repeatedly been pushed back due to complaints from the landlord lobby and Tory backbenchers who happen to be landlords. Um, on BBC Radio 2 today, Housing Secretary Michael Gove explained the move. The problem with no-fault evictions, these so-called Section 21 evictions, is that they're used by a small minority of rogue landlords to intimidate tenants. So when you have tenants who are living in, in substandard housing who may raise questions about damp or mould, then sometimes you have some landlords who say, look, um, uh, if you carry on complaining like this, you're out. It is also the case that some of the same uh, uh, difficult landlords can also use Section 21 to say to people, uh, we're going to put um, your rent up, uh, we're going to put it up at an extortionate level, and again, if you complain, you're out. And that uncertainty, that uh, potential for intimidation, as I say, is restricted to a small minority, but obviously for the tenants affected, it means that they can't raise their concerns, they can't get the, the fair treatment that they deserve. It, this will make it harder to evict tenants, and I wonder whether it will be just generally more difficult to be a landlord as a result. No, I think it's also the case that this legislation makes it easier for the overwhelming majority of landlords who to do a, a brilliant job. I mean, we need a, a healthy private rented sector um, to do their job because it's also the case that we take steps to ensure that if tenants are antisocial, that landlords can evict them more quickly. And also if tenants are persistently and deliberately evading their responsibility to pay their rent, then they can also be evicted more quickly as well. Deliberately evading their responsibility to pay their rent on time can just mean being a little bit broke. Um, but this is semantic, I suppose. Um, as Michael Gove explained there, the official justification for the legislation is to try and prevent Section 21's being wielded as a threat by bad landlords, all the while giving landlords more power to evict genuinely problematic tenants. So that's the theory. Um, one thing not directly addressed, though, is the price of renting, which is often my main complaint. Um, ITV put that to Michael Gove. The London Renters Union says that there's nothing in the bill which prevents huge rent hikes and a 20% rent increase, for example, is just no-fault eviction under another name. Well, it is certainly the case that we have to be vigilant about rents everywhere. The good news is that even at a time when people are facing real pressure on their household budgets, that rents in the private rented sector have risen less than inflation. And of course, in this legislation, we affirm that rents can only rise once a year and if rents are thought to be unfair, there's an ombudsman now that we're creating. And ultimately, there's the backstop of the courts and a tribunal in order to ensure that rents are fixed in a fair market way. 
is that a sensible sort of construction of words that a fair market way now i've done a lot of work on housing the places where it works best is where the market isn't really left to its own devices. So Vienna, 60% of people live in social housing. Even The Economist, the right-wing economist, says that is the best place to live in the world. Um, but no, Michael Gove is still committed to those market forces, which means that prices can still be hiked. Um, so he says it can't be wildly out of line with market forces. But at the moment in, in London, rents are going up by 15 or 20%. That's the same in many parts of the country. Now, he says, I think it's actually a little bit misleading what he says there. He says, rents are going up by below inflation. Now, I think presumably how he got that figure is because lots of people's rent doesn't change year on year. I think when it comes to finding a new tenancy, um, rents are you know way above inflation. So going up 15, 20% um, along those lines. Um, so how should we summarize this or how should we sort of think about this bill and what it will do? Well, one, I mean, I think it is a, uh, it's better than what we currently have, right? So having these long-term tenancies where there isn't this constant threat of section 21 should mean that you feel a little bit more empowered to ask your landlord for repairs, for example, because you're not going to get a revenge eviction. What it doesn't do though, is give you long-term housing security in your home. And that's for a few reasons. One, um, as I've just said, because your rent might raise um, dramatically, even if it's not wildly out of step with the market rates, as Michael Gove seems to be suggesting there, but it, it could still rise um, dramatically. And importantly as well, um, they can still kick you out if they want to sell the home. So the they being a landlord, a landlord can kick you out if they want to sell the home, or they can kick you out if they or a family member want to move back in. So those are three things over which you as a tenant have absolutely no control and no certainty. So it's better than it was before, but still um, you can find um, that within a few months you have to leave because one, um, your landlord wants to sell the home or they want to move back in or they've decided that the market allows them to raise rent. So better than what we were working with before, still not amazing. Um, there are other details as well. They were included in the government's press release. You know, the legislation isn't published yet. It's been introduced to Parliament sort of in principle. And um, so we can go to the details from that. Um, they say the renters reform bill will give tenants the legal right to request a pet in their home, which the landlord must consider and cannot unreasonably refuse. Obviously, a lot there will determine on what counts as unreasonable. Um, it will also give landlords the ability to require pet insurance to cover any damage to their property, apply the decent home standard to the private rental sector for the first time, giving renters safer, higher quality homes and remove the blight of poor quality homes in local communities. Um, so currently the decent home standards um, only applies to social housing. And we know that actually um, that hasn't protected social housing from having some terrible homes. Um, they will also um, make it illegal for landlords and agents to have blanket bans on renting to tenants in receipt of benefits or with children, ensuring no family is unjustly discriminated against when looking for a place to live. Again, um, I think, especially on that final point, the devil will be in the detail. Um, and that's because it seems to me that what this is banning is having on your advert. So at the moment, if you go for a Zoopla or whatever, you'll probably see lots of adverts where it says no pets or it says no DSS. I'm not sure why we settled on that because it's not called the DSS here, Department for Social Security. Um, but basically what they're saying is if you're on benefits, don't apply here because they're saying it's, it's too likely that you'll get sanctioned and then you won't be able to pay us on time. So we only accept people who aren't on benefits and who can prove to us that they're working full time. What this is saying or what the legislation is apparently going to include according to the, to the government is to say that that's illegal. Now, my concern here is that they'll take it off the advert but then when you go to the viewing, if there are 
10 different people, or at the moment, there's often, you know, 30 or 50 different people to choose from to live in a place, they will still choose the people with the highest income with the least pets, etc, etc, etc. So and without a family. So whilst, you know, formally, they're not allowed to be explicit in their discrimination, there could still well be implicit discrimination. And that's because if you listen to Michael Go sort of on the on the radio today, he's still saying, no, this is still their property, which they can dispose of as uh, as they will, we're just not um, allowing explicit discrimination, which to me doesn't seem um, incredible, um, as I say, better than where we were, still not incredible. It seems to me like the bare minimum. Um, not everyone sees it that way. The Telegraph's Annabelle Denham wasn't impressed. I think actually Michael Gove might be the most dangerous person in British politics uh, at the moment with his demonization of uh, landlords. I think the problem is that landlords are such easy prey. For years now, successive governments have treated private rental property like a whipping boy. They've imposed penal uh, taxes, ever-increasing regulation, and they've been able to do so with very little opposition, very little resistance. Um, It gets massive support from the left. Um, Novara Media, that... that, um, media outlet actually sell caps which say hate landlords uh, across the top of them just to show you how uh, enraged and incensed young people feel towards uh, particularly on the left feel towards uh, landlords uh, at the moment um, but of course you know as with all regulations it's going to have unintended consequences making it making no fault uh, evictions uh, or banning no fault evictions mm. um, making it too hard for um, landlords to evict rent uh, tenants if they're beha- misbehaving or not treating the property uh, property properly will mean that more landlords leave the sector. Meanwhile, Keir Starmer has given this interview to The Times. There he's been outlining Labour's plans to get more homes built and including promising more homes to be built on the Green Belt. And he also spoke to BBC Breakfast. We're going to back the builders, not the blockers. And what's happened recently is the government's complete failure when it comes to house building. They took down targets for house building. That means that building will fall almost certainly to the lowest level since the Second World War. And that will kill the dream of home ownership for very, very many people across the country. And that's a very important dream. That's an aspiration, basic security. So what will we do about it? We will put those targets back up. But that on its own, I don't think will be enough. We also need to fix the broken system because the planning rules don't work uh, for building to take place. So we need to fix them, give local areas more control about where building takes place and to create uh, development corporations as the vehicle to drive house building because for so many people, that basic security of having your own home. It's a ver- for working people, this is a very, very important aspiration. It's about security. And so every house that we build um, is good for homeowners or want to be homeowners, but also good for our economy, it kickstart our economy. So that's our ambition to, as it were, clear up the mess the government will leave um, and come into government if we're privileged enough to do so um, and back the builders, not the blockers. Now, I actually think this is pretty good or or fine from Keir Starmer. I mean, I would have a more ambitious housing policy. I think Labour in 2019 had a more ambitious housing policy. But the idea that we need to build more homes, as regular viewers of the show will, will know, I think we need lots more. And a big problem with the Tory government has been, one, I suppose that they're in hock to landlords and, 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 and property developers who don't necessarily want to build loads because they like to hold back land, but also because Tory backbenchers tend to be very nimbyish. Um, often people, often representing sort of constituencies in the in the countryside, small villages that don't want to be any bigger 
um, or towns that don't want to expand. Um, so it, it seems to me that Keir Starmer is saying the right thing here. Interesting, though, to me that this is one of the few policy areas where he is saying something concrete. Now, I think that's probably because the proposals he's suggesting there won't cost much money, right? You don't have to increase taxes to do it. And it has given me this sort of idea of Labour policy under Keir Starmer is kind of what Michael Gove would do were he not beholden to Tory backbenchers because Michael Gove did also try to introduce the kind of planning reform that Keir Starmer seems to be talking about, um, but he had to drop it um, because Tory backbenchers wouldn't let him do it. So it's it, it, it's the kind of technocratic. He, Starmer will be the uh, the Michael Gove Michael Gove wants to be, but isn't allowed to because there's too many wackos in, in his party and NIMBYs. Um, the policy, which is yeah, probably the most controversial, um, is Starmer's suggestion that more can be built on the green belt. He was Asked about that on the BBC. We have to face up to the fact that we do already build on bits of the Green Belt. It's where we build. And I want to give you one example just to try to explain what I mean. In Maidstone, houses were built on a playing field rather than a car park because the car park was technically in the Green Belt and the playing field wasn't. Now, I don't think anybody who cares about our countryside would think that's a good idea. So what I'm saying is if we give local areas the power to direct where housing is, um, even when it's on the green belt, if it's a car park rather than the playing field, then I think that protecting the car park and building on the playing field was the wrong choice. And we would make those tough choices and say to local areas, you know, notwithstanding that it's the green belt, if it's a car park or similar land which you know doesn't affect the beauty of our countryside, which we all want to preserve, uh, then we'll take, we'll change the planning rules. We'll give you the powers to do that. Now, what I thought was funny there is Simon saying we're going to take the tough decisions. We're going to take the tough decisions. And the only example of building on the green belt he could give is when a car park has you know you know mistakenly been classified as the green belt. So I mean, I think a tough decision would be to say sometimes we might need to build on the odd field here and there. If I was, you know, the dictator of Britain, which I'm not, I would have quite a lot of fields for farming. I'd have loads and loads of sort of real rewilded wildlife areas because I think, you know, the, the there are so many rolling hills. We've got so many of them. I think we we want more sort of like wildlife explosions. Um, vote for me, guys. And then we also want more towns, more villages, higher cities. We need more places to live. I think, you know, we, we do underuse the country because we are quite unimaginative and we let the wrong people block the right things. Um, housing is, of course, as you can tell, the theme of today's news. And of course, no news cycle would pass or can pass in this country without the Tories using the opportunity for some migrant bashing at the Bizarro National Conservatism Conference. Michael Gove blamed high housing costs on migration. Um, I found this very frustrating because on, on the one level, he is correct. Obviously, if you have a fixed supply or something, if we don't have many houses to go around and then you have a lot of people arriving, that will put some pressure on housing. Why I find it a very annoying thing for him to say at this point in time is because that's an admission of failure on the part of the government. Like, you know, migration will bring with it some challenges to public services and to housing. What's the response? Not to blame migrants, it's to blame the government for not building more houses or properly funding public services. Because as we know, migration tends to be good for the tax base, tends to be good for productivity. I personally find it fabulous culturally and you know, um, in, in terms of making cities vibrant places to live. So a positive thing. The idea that, oh, it's a positive thing, but we have to stop it because there aren't enough houses. Just build the goddamn houses, right? You've had 13 years. Suella Braverman, 
um, in her usual style has also got involved. Um, and she has decided that while renters or most renters will be getting more rights, asylum seekers should be getting fewer. The government is planning to make landlords exempt from even basic regulations when they are housing asylum seekers. The plan is intended to cut hotel use. And the move will involve exempting landlords from registering their properties as housing for multiple occupants or HMOs um, when they are um, housing asylum seekers. So a representative from the Joint Council for the Welfare of, of, of Immigrants sorry, um, said this. HMO licenses exist to make sure that accommodation meets basic levels of safety and sanitation. However, much asylum accommodation already falls below these standards with people seeking sanctuary housed in cramped windowless rooms smaller than prison cells. Without HMO licenses, already traumatized people will be at risk of living in places that are unfit for human habitation. Dahlia, is it just impossible for this government to give any group of uh, of citizens rights without taking away rights from from other people it seems like it has to be you get some you lose some why can't we all get some you know we often say that borders and migration regimes and racism are essentially ways that the upper class divides and conquers the working class and normally that happens in more subtle ways what's happening is they're just doing it up front. Uh, they're doing it, they're on the nose. You know, it reminds me a lot of uh, last week, we talked about the offshore prison that is going to be used to house uh, refugees while their processes, their asylum applications are being processed. And there was this idea, I think it was Robert Jenrick who said, you know, the, the living standards on this ship, on this offshore prison are going to meet the absolute basic minimum legal standard. And he made a point to say, it will be nothing more than that. And that, you know, they will make sure that no asylum seeker is living in a better condition than British citizens. And to me, that just betrays so much about how the hatred of asylum seekers and the whipping up of racism against refugees is essentially a way to try and soften the blow of how the standard of living in, of working class people in this country has fallen so dramatically. But ultimately, the organized abandonment, which is what this policy is about, it's about organized abandonment of displaced people, the organized state-driven abandonment of these people, that is not going to make anyone, any citizen in this country's housing better. It's not going to make their paycheck higher. It's not going to make their healthcare service better. And I think that what we need to understand here is that the only way that we can actually ensure whether you are a citizen or a refugee or a migrant, whatever, the only way that we can make sure that we can reclaim our housing system in this country and have a better uh, and have our housing market be about actually giving us places to live rather than enriching the portfolios of already very wealthy people is if we insist that no single human being on this land is going to be living in substandard housing and to not allow the government to use borders, to use migration, to use race in order to say that some people deserve substandard and life-threatening housing and other people don't because ultimately the way the government treats refugees and asylum seekers is how they will eventually treat you when they get a chance. We've got to move straight on because we've got a, a guest lined up um, to talk about you know, probably the most important topic, climate change. Scientists have warned that global temperatures are almost certain to surge to new records in the next five years. Even more concerning, 
they're set to breach the all-important threshold of 1.5 degrees of warming compared to pre-industrial levels. This is all according to the new or two new research from the UN agency, the World Meteorological Organization, been practicing that for a while. Their Secretary General said this a warming El Nino is expected to develop in the coming months, and this will combine with human-induced climate change to push global temperatures into uncharted territory. This will have far-reaching repercussions for health, food security, water management, and the environment. We need to be prepared. El Nino is a weather event we see every three to five years. It's a period of warming which lasts um, around 12 months. El Nino, like its opposite La Nina, um, is cyclical, so it's not caused itself by climate change. But what the WMO are predicting is that El Nino, we're, we're due to experience, that will be um, the hottest ever because it's combining with climate change. So in short, El Nino plus climate change, very bad news. Um, the scientists calculate it's that combination of El Nino and climate change that means there is a 66% chance we will breach the 1.5 degree threshold in the next five years. The WMO head also said this... This report does not mean that we will permanently exceed the 1.5 degrees specified in the Paris Agreement, which refers to long-term warming, warming over many years. However, um, the WMO is sounding the alarm that we will breach the 1.5 degree level on a temporary basis with increasing frequency. Um, I'm joined now by Ella Gilbert, a climate scientist at the British Antarctic Survey. Thanks for joining us again, Ella. Um, can you start by reminding us why... Why is it this 1.5 degree target that matters? We, we always come back to this figure. Yeah, so 1.5 degrees is a really important political target, and it's what's enshrined in the Paris Climate Agreement, which is this international legislation where all countries have agreed to keep global temperatures on average to well below two degrees, but one and a half is very often referred to as what is the upper limit of safe climate warming. Um, I think what's important about this particular new report is the fact that it's about temporarily exceeding 1.5 degrees C. So just because we are, we might see 1.5 degrees exceeded or reached in the next five years for a month or a year, for example, it doesn't mean that temperatures are, are not going to fall again. So what we, the one and a half degree political target is more about average temperatures and the trend overall, whereas this particular report is warning about us reaching 1.5 degrees C temporarily and then potentially dropping underneath again. And I suppose what was most worrying for me reading these reports is that, so you've got these two climate events. One is El Nino and one is La Nina. La Nina means that you have sort of below average temperatures. And we've been in that for the past three years. Now, uh, the way we've been reporting climate change for the past three years is this is the hottest year ever. This is the hottest day ever. You know, obviously, we breached 40 degrees last year in Britain. And that was all within La Nina. So that was all in a, in a situation where we should have been having lower than average temperatures. How, how scared should that make us all? Yeah, exactly. That's a, a very crucial point. Um, it looks like we're tipping into an El Nino very soon, if not in the next couple of months. And this is likely to amplify warming. It means you get you tend to get more kind of dry conditions, more wildfires, more heatwave conditions in uh, the UK and uh, northern 
Europe, Northern Hemisphere particularly. And this is likely to amplify what's already happening with climate change. So it's starting from a warmer baseline because we continue to spew greenhouse gases into our atmosphere and warm our climate. So anything that is kind of added on top of that, for example, an El Nino, um, is likely to just push temperatures even higher. And I think this report also says there's something like a 98% chance that we will break the record set by 2016 sometime in the next five years. And if I was a, a betting person, I would say probably sooner than the next five years. If, I mean, maybe this is a bit grim in a way, but if we're looking at sort of the extreme weather events that are going to be the, the big news stories, let's say, of sort of the next three years, or which might be the the biggest humanitarian catastrophes, what what should we be looking out for and how would one prepare for them? Is it is it droughts? The thing about climate change is that it touches every single corner and every different type of extreme weather event. So on the one hand, you've got increasing frequency and intensity of heat waves and droughts and wildfires, which can all happen simultaneously and add to each other to create an impact that is kind of greater than the sum of its parts. And the same time, you can have more uh, impacts on wet extremes. So you can have more intense rainfall, for example, you can have more flooding, you can have more flash flooding, and you can have both of those things happening at the same time, because climate change essentially just intensifies all different types of extremes. And it's not necessarily just the dry ones that you might imagine are associated with warming temperatures anything anywhere which is i suppose what's so scary about it and um, finally because i know we need to let you go um this report has said um, that it is sounding the sounding the alarm um uh, reports often tell us this is the last chance or that we you are know, one minute to midnight um what is the strategy of the scientific community to get people to listen is it sort of use ever more scary language do you feel like you're being listened to now what's the how do you feel that sort of the nature of the relationship between scientists and politics at the moment Oh, that's a thorny question. I don't think there is particularly a strategy. I think that's potentially the problem. Um, scientists have been shouting their increasingly alarmed alarms since before I was even born. You know, Jim Hansen testified to the US Congress in 1988. This is not new information. Um, scientists have been saying these things for decades and decades. And it is only in the last few years that it seems like climate change is increasing, well, moving up the agenda, but still nowhere near fast enough. Um, the last IPCC report, for example, was very, very clear that we are not doing enough and we are not doing it fast enough and that we need to take much more urgent action. And a big part of that is communicating. And a big part of that is actually listening to the science, scientists and experts who've been uh, increasingly shouting at the top of their lungs about this problem. So. I'm not sure if there is a strategy, but if there was one, uh, this is perhaps not the best one. Next story. The Met Police have been widely criticised for their heavy-handed policing of the coronation. And they today had their day in court. Well, not exactly court, but they did have to justify themselves to the Home Affairs Select Committee. Senior Metropolitan Police Officer Matt Twist gave this statement. I absolutely felt pressure to deliver a safe and secure operation. But that wasn't political pressure. That was the pressure to do a good job. And we police the laws as they are set without fear or favour. And that is, has always been the case. And what is clear in the case of protest is that there are strongly held and differing views. I have seen reporting, which is completely 
erroneous and false that suggests that all protest was prohibited or banned or in some way constrained. That simply isn't the case. We're very familiar with our duties around um, dealing with protests, both positive duties under the Human Rights Act and negative duties, um, and balancing the mm -hmm. rights of people who wish to protest with those impacted by the protest is part of the day-to-day -day job of policing in London. There's a sort of fine line between mm -hmm. what is peaceful protest and then what is straying into illegal activity, as we've seen in the sort of latter part of last year and the start of this year, and where those right, the, the shifting of those scales sort of takes place, where crime is being committed, then obviously we need to intervene much more quickly. The problem was they intervened when crime wasn't being committed. You can't say, oh, there is this blurry line between illegal and legal protest. Yeah, there is a bit of a blurry line between illegal and, and legal protest, but you arrested a bunch of people um, who definitely weren't doing anything illegal. And I think this is why this is such an important issue, because what you often hear from the right wing press is, oh, this is why did they have to protest on this day? Now, there was one day of the year where people wanted to enjoy the coronation. Why can't they protest on any other day of the year? Well, the reason they're protesting at this event is because this is the event they don't want to happen. They don't want the coronation to happen, right? Now, they weren't, they weren't trying to stop it happening. That would probably be a bit undemocratic. But all they want to do is hold up their signs and make some speeches, right? And if you are arresting the leaders of a movement, putting them in jail for 24 hours and letting them out after the big event is over, you haven't let the protest happen. You've let some people protest, but you've, you know, you've decapitated the leadership of the protest, taken away. Uh, they took away some of the speakers, so obviously it'd be harder to give speeches. Graham Smith is um, one of the leaders of, of, of that movement, and he was also at the committee. He's the CEO of the anti-monarchy campaign group Republic and was one of the people arrested on the day of the coronation. He had this to say. We never had any intention of doing anything which even came close to falling outside of the law. I'm very concerned by the statements that have been made today by the police and in, in the letter that they sent to Sadiq Khan. There's a lot of uh, claims there which are simply untrue. Um, and um, I'm concerned by the suggestion that we were there for 16 hours partly because of processing. I know uh, the officer told me at 1, 1 p.m. in the afternoon that um, he was ready to interview me and after that I could go. I was then told just a couple of days ago that our solicitor arrived around 1 p.m. It was 6 p.m. before I was interviewed, and I was the first of our eight to be interviewed, or the first of the six in that station. So I would really like to, uh, I would hope that this committee can get answers as to whether there was political inf interference, who made what decision, um, and whether this is premeditated, because it certainly had the impression that they had turned up with the intention of detaining us. And I would also, just very quickly, I appreciate um, time, the notion that we were still able to protest. We weren't. We were in cells. But the protest was significantly disrupted and diminished as a result of their actions. They continued throughout the day. They confiscated our mm. amplifiers, even though they had said that we were allowed to use them. They threatened the rest of the people with megaphones and then arrested two people with megaphones. Um, and I do know for a fact that large numbers of people then went, left, or didn't turn up because of those arrests. So he's saying it's not just the people who were arrested who were unable to protest. It was also a bunch of people who would have turned up but didn't because they were scared that they would be arrested, you know, quite understandably, because they were arresting people for doing nothing wrong. I thought that point he made at the beginning there was also interesting, the one about political interference, because as you heard in that, that first clip, the police officer said there was no political interference. Now, that kind of doesn't really prove anything because a police officer has to say that. If you, if you admit there was political interference, and that's a huge scandal, um, I actually had a conversation with Jacob Rees-Mogg about this on GB News the other day, and he sort of closed the conversation. Said, no, of course there wasn't politically, political interference because that would be unconstitutional. So, so that's, that's not how arguments work. You can't say it would be bad, so it didn't happen. It would be bad, and it seems like it probably did happen. 
Also, it depends what political interference counts as, doesn't it? I, I very much doubt there's an email from Suella Braverman to the head of the, the Metropolitan Police saying, can you please be super tough on these people? But what happened the week before the coronation? The Public Order Act was passed you know, on a, on a really, really sped up schedule just two days before the coronation. Now, you don't need to have proof of an email saying be tough on these protesters to send a message to the police, which is say, we care so much about this going smoothly that we are passing legislation on a sped up schedule. So, so to me, that looks like political interference in and of itself. There were lots of serious questions from MPs at this select committee and serious answers, if you just saw there. Um, not all MPs were as serious as others, though. This is Tory MP Lee Anderson. After your arrest and the time spent in the cells, I, my inbox sort of exploded a little bit and people were saying that it was right that he was, that he was arrested. Uh, you described as a trouble causer, um, a public nuisance, and you're just there to ruin people's day, days out. That's their <coughs> words, not mine. Um, I've looked at your website and it says that you embrace democracy. So I guess my question, I've only got one question for you, is if you embrace democracy so much, why don't you put your placards away and stand for election? I don't know that that's particularly relevant to the inquiry. To I think we're interested in what happened to yeah. you on that yeah. day and whether the law was appropriately and properly applied. I'm happy applied. to sit here and tell you all about why the monarchy is a bad thing and why we should be a republic, but I think we are actually focusing right. on I think the police. Okay. We haven't got time to go into all of that today. <laughs> so I suppose two things to say there. So obviously... You know, as as the MPs and the people on the panel made clear, that wasn't a question that was relevant to what they were discussing at the time. But also, it's a really incredibly limited vision of democracy. If you believe in democracy, why don't you stand for election? Now, it's it's not radical to say that democracy isn't just about elections and standing for elections. Like, I mean, it's liberal, actually. It's, it's, it's liberal to say elections matter. So does the rule of law. So does the ability to participate in politics in other ways. So does freedom of speech. The idea that the only way one can participate in democracy is to stand for election is, is wild, right? If that's your view, if that's his view, then no one should ever protest anything because they should only ever stand for election. Then how do you get your message out? Unless you have mates in the in, in, in the sectors of the, the right-wing press who might support your campaign. How do you get your message out? Now, Lee Anderson, lucky enough to stand for the party, which is backed by all the billionaire barons. So it wasn't particularly difficult for him to get his message out. But for anyone else, it might not be so easy. Also on the panel um, in that committee was human rights lawyer Adam Wagner. He spoke about the chilling effect the Public Order Act could have on protesters. For your average person, so not your sort of hardcore protester who's willing to risk arrest and, and prison and, and, you know, full respect to people who, the conscient, the sort of, uh, those people who are willing to put their beliefs on the line in that way. But the vast majority of people who turn up to protest are not those people. They are people who are going to be thinking, well, I don't want to be the um, Susie. I don't want to be, um, who wasn't even there for the protest, was there for something else. I don't want to be caught in the dragnet of this Public Order Act. I, 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 you know, I believe in this cause, but I'm not willing to risk my job, risk, uh, you know, being in the newspapers as a as a radical protester because I've been arrested um, or detained. Um, no smoke without fire, and all of that. So I think you, you will see, first of all, a chilling effect, but second of all, a radicalization of the people who end up protesting, which is a kind of it will end up being a self fulfilling prophecy in a way. Some people who weren't deterred from protesting. Uh, were some activists with Just Stop Oil. Um, this was the moment they interrupted the proceedings.
you usually use a combination lock to stop. Uh, we're here today to become a democracy. Uh, come, on, yeah, come on, officer. Come on, come on, officer. Come on, officer. Come on, officer. After that intervention, um, he and four others, uh, other campaigners, sorry, were asked to leave the room. They had all previously been arrested during the coronation. Um, this is how Just Stop Oil responded to the events at the committee. This is a continuation of the silencing of legitimate dissent we saw at the coronation. The Metropolitan Police baselessly arrested doctors, lecturers, students and electricians simply for possessing flags and t-shirts. This is clearly politically motivated and represents a massive overreach by the police. No evidence has been provided and now those wrongfully arrested are being prevented from giving evidence to the very committee that has been organised to assess the policing during the coronation. Dahlia, um, are we getting to the truth of what happened on the day of the coronation? Well, I think it's very difficult to because I actually, in the first clip that we saw of that senior uh, police officer, I actually think what he said there was quite astute. What he said was there is a very fine line between legitimate protesting and illegal activity. And that is actually true. But the reason that's true is not because there's anything inherently harmful or scary about protest and forms of dissent that have been criminalized, but it's because successive pieces of legislation, uh, both done by this conservative government, ramped up by this conservative government, but also that precedes that this conservative government, have been about making that line as blurry as possible, whether we're talking about strike action or whether we're talking about street protests. And what they've been trying to do, what that legislation has tried to do is make that line blurry by placing increasing power of discretion in the hands of police officers. So allowing police officers to exert more power uh, and, more, and to exert power that is legitimized on the basis of their discretion and on the basis of what they sense to be true or whether they have reasons to be suspicious. So a good example of this, if we take outside of the kind of protesting context and apply this, say, to stop and search. So stop and search is about giving police, pow police powers to use dis their discretion to decide if someone is likely to be carrying arms or carrying drugs or whatever. And the police are allowed to essentially manhandle and at times strip search people on the basis of that discretion. And then when you take that to a court case, you know, the reason why we don't see accountability and we don't see conviction of police officers when they do use that discretionary power in ways that we find unacceptable is because the law has actually protected them um, from accountability because it endows the momentary discretion that they have at the point at the time with inherent legitimacy. So I actually think that part of the strategy here to minimize dissent is to not only expand the remit of behaviors and activity that are considered criminalized, for example, criminalizing the intention to commit XYZ or criminalizing association with XYZ, but also to place enhanced powers in the hands of discretionary judgment made by police officers in a particular moment. It then becomes not it, that not only results in more aggressive policing, but it results in basically making it impossible to 
make the police take accountability because there is no mechanism of accountability because they are given that power by law. Next story. The National Conservatism Conference has had some pretty reactionary and sometimes wacky speeches. Suella Bradman has railed against multiculturalism. Douglas Murray has called Nazism a case of Germans mucking up. And now it's the turn of disgraced historian David Starkey. The official account for the NatCon conference um, tweeted this out. Um, The reason that the left has such ire for the Jews is jealousy. They want to replace the Holocaust with slavery in order to wield its legacy as a weapon against Western culture. And then you can see um, David Starkey at the hashtag NatConUK. Now, lots of people, understandably, um, took offence to that tweet and it was promptly deleted. That did make me wonder, maybe the, the social media person took him out of context. No, <laughs> this is the quote from, from David Starkey um, verbatim. It's not good. The narrative of Black Lives Matter is that Western culture and Anglo-American culture in particular are fundamentally and morally defective. They are characterized by the mark of pain and their strategy is to do exactly what was done to German culture because of Nazism and the Holocaust. But the determination is to replace the Holocaust with slavery. In other words, this is why Jews are under such attack from the left. There's jealousy, fundamentally, there's jealousy of the moral primacy of the Holocaust and the determination to replace it with slavery. Dahlia, there's jealousy of the moral primacy of the Holocaust and the determination to replace it with slavery, and that's why people on the left are anti-Semitic. I mean, how? what's your response to David Starkey? And they say that we're the ones doing oppression Olympics. Why are we... Why are we compare, like why are we having a competition between the moral primacy or whatever of two genocidal historical events? It may, it, it's compl- it's so egregious, and I actually think it's really difficult to overstate quite how terrifying the events of this conference or this convention or whatever, this hellhole um, taking place in our city. Um, how scary that is. And I think we need to really understand, you know, on the one hand, we have David Starkey, you know, saying that there is a moral primacy to the Holocaust that is not relevant, that is not afforded to other um, like historical genocides. And then at the same conference, you have uh, Douglas Murray referring to the Holocaust and referring to Nazism as a muck-up of nationalism. And I actually think it's really important to understand that it's actually not a contradiction that those two points are being made in the same platform. Because what we are seeing here is that what is often made to seem like a like solidarity with the Jewish community against anti-Semitism and against the rising threat of anti-Semitism, particularly from the far right, is not actually genuine solidarity from an anti-racist perspective. And that actually it is very important for us on the left to understand that despite um, growing conversations in the mainstream media and from, you know, this very right wing and racist government about anti-Semitism, that actually it's very important that we understand that the Jewish community is at risk here and that they are actually left unprotected by the forces that are claiming to protect them, um, that that is a disingenuous form of solidarity and concern. And it's very important that we don't, uh, that we are aware of that in our anti-racist movement, that the growing hostility and racialization of Jewish people um, in this country, in Europe, in the US, 
is a front line of anti-racist struggle at the moment. And it's important to disentangle that and understand that the, 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 the very odd ways that can often seem like sympathy or solidarity that's coming from the right is actually packaged in this incredibly degrading and insincere um, form of concern. And that's why we are seeing both of those positions being articulated in the same platform. Um, and it's it's incredibly concerning um, to me that we are in a position right now where they feel able, because these people have always thought this way, but what has changed is that they feel confident and safe enough, essentially, you know, you know, metaphorically, to state these on a platform and have it disseminated to the public. This has moved from the private, this kind of thinking, to the public sphere. It is being resonated by and through our state. And that is an incredibly concerning, we are an incredibly concerning juncture when it comes to the rise of the far right. And just because they, they're in, you know, suits and they're speaking at the, um, I believe it was the Natural History Museum, doesn't mean that they, we shouldn't call a spade a spade. And what this is, is far right language and rhetoric. This, you know, they want to do to the West what was done to Germany because of Nazism. Now, in a way, I mean, Germany to me, you know, post-war Germany, seems to be, you know, quite a good example of, of, of how a country can do pretty much fine without, without sorry, without nationalism, right? So, so obviously, nationalism in Germany was for very good reason um, seen as taboo. And they've done all right. <laughs> Their growth levels are very high. Um, they have a great export industry. You know, it, it rents cheaper. It seems like a sort of more rationally organized economy than many other places. And so to sort of say, imagine if we were as harsh on nationalism as the Germans have been, uh, have felt they need to be, wouldn't that be terrible? Would it be terrible? I say a similar thing about the Japanese after the Second World War. You know, if, if you do something as a country, which is terrible, and then afterwards say, okay, well, let's dump nationalism. You know, the historical record seems to be like, well, that tends to go quite well, actually, for the country in question. So if we were to say our history of slavery means that nationalism should be viewed a bit suspiciously, like, great. You know, I, I really don't think that's something that we should particularly worried about. Final story. Are you struggling with the record increases in food prices? Well, former Tory minister Anne Widdicombe has some advice. What do you say to consumers who can't, literally can't afford uh, to pay even for some of the basics if they've gone up the way that cheese sandwich has with all its ingredients? Well, then you, uh, you don't do the cheese sandwich. But, but, I mean, we're talking I, about I, basics. We're no, talking about absolute basics and no, staples. We're talking, about, no we're talking about own, no. bread pa uh, own brand pasta. You're talking about bread. Mm. We're talking about families who cannot afford to feed their children. There's a story today about Are mothers you... who can't afford formula milk. So their babies are literally and none starving of it's at the moment. So the government we've been through this before. So the government Our shouldn't be doing this because we've been so years you would now. let the children go because hungry. Because we've been decades now, decades without inflation. We've come to regard it as some sort of given right. Which is should though, but should. Should the poorest and most vulnerable be helped right out more when it comes out? They are being helped at. But especially on the idea of food. I mean, they are being helped. So we, we've come to see it as some God-given right that we should be able to afford sandwiches and baby milk formula. So she, she doesn't think baby milk formula for babies should be a right. That should be a privilege, actually, for the babies of Britain. Um, Dahlia, how would you respond to, to former Tory minister Anne Widdicombe, who obviously then became a Brexit party candidate. 
Um, should people just stop eating cheese sandwiches? I mean, it just shows the contempt that she has for working class people, right? And when they say, this isn't the first time we've been through this, you know, we've been through this before, I presume what she's referring to is the kind of very bizarre nostalgia that conservatives have for like rations. I don't know. I, Britain is the only country where people feel nostalgia for rationing. Um, she feels, you know, oh, we went through this and we got through that that time. And, you know, we just need to toughen up and, and be austere and whatever, as if and it gives them some kind of like thrill. You know, they're really living in their British identity when they talk about, you know, people having to ration food in the, you know, the fifth largest economy in the world. It's an indictment of the uh, the economic system that you support that 60, 70 years on from that, we are still in the same position that we were in during those times. Like surely development is about increasing the standard of living, about increasing, you know, raising the floor so that people, the floor that people hit during times of economic crisis is higher than it was 50, 60, 70 years ago. Yet you're taking pride somehow that we are essentially once again in post-war levels of scarcity. That's not how it should be after 60 or 70 years of so-called capitalist development. That's not the story that you told us about trickle-down economics and about, you know, this for, this form of development and, gro and economic growth. Um, so I think really it betrays the, the fact that there is a fetishization um, in this country amongst conservatives, amongst the upper class for the suffering of poor people. I think they see it as somehow justified because ultimately they see poverty as a failure of individual morality. And it's in moments like these when Anne Widdicombe is saying that she thinks so little of working class people in this country, that they shouldn't even consider baby formula to be a basic human right in the fifth largest economy in the world. That to me shows that at its core, the conservative ideology is that people who are poor are poor, not because of a systemic economic system, not because we are in multiple overlapping crises that poor people have had nothing to do with in this country. It's because they as individuals have morally failed. And we, you can't reason, like you cannot reason with someone who fundamentally believes that, which is why I always believe that the position shouldn't be, oh, we're just going to ask meekly for the basic standards of living. No, 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 we're going to ask for more than cheese sandwiches. We're going to ask for lobster and champagne for all the working classes because that's what they deserve. You know, it's interesting you read that as a reference to um, rationing, which probably it was meant as I actually was, was thinking about. She, she just meant the last time she was in government. Um, this happens every time the Tories are in power. Why is anyone complaining about it now? Um, Dahlia, let's wrap up there. Thank you so much for joining me this evening. Thanks for having me, Michael. And thank you to everyone for watching. We'll be back again tomorrow at 6pm for another live stream. For now, you've been watching Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navarramedia.com slash support.